feel like time's fast-forwarded about 10 years. <laughs> the text that was read in, in Matthew chapter 7, I'd like for us to consider that again. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Some of us uh, remember Yogi Berra, Yogi Berra. He was a New York Yankees catcher back when I was a young guy. That's probably about... 50 or 50, 60 years ago, and he was part of that New York dynasty. And dynasty, and uh, Yogi had a way with words, and they called him Yogiisms. And one time he says, "When you come to a fork in the road, take it." You'll get it in a minute. <laughs> and and we we understand when he says that. You know, you think, well, what's he saying? You know, because when you come to a fork in the road, you've got to go either one way or another. But when it comes to our religious life, sometimes we're like Yogi Berra. We come to the fork in the road, we take it. Uh, because we don't want to make a real strong decision for God, but we also don't want to make a decision to walk in the way that's evil to go through the wide gate and walk the broad way. And so we come to the fork in the road and we take it. We don't make decisions. Making decisions is difficult for a lot of people. In fact, there has been a word coined uh, for those that struggle making decisions. And it's decidophobia. In other words, a fear of making a decision. Um, wasn't sure if I was going to say this or not. Uh, guys, don't raise your hand when I ask this question. But if you agree, blink three times and make sure, <laughs> make sure your wife doesn't see it. Has anyone here ever had a problem deciding where you want to eat? <laughs> I got the message, guys. You know, many of life's decisions are like that. But some decisions are much more intense, have much more consequences, many more consequences. There was a book written back in 1979 by the fellow by the name of William Styron. And the book was called Sophie's Choice. And they made a movie into it. And uh, the actress, Meryl Streep, I think it was, won an Academy Award for uh, her portrayal of this character, Sophie. And it played out, it was a lot of, you know, drama, but it came down that the movie revealed that when Sophie and her children, two children, a boy and a girl, were taken to 
a German concentration camp. And when they arrived, the officer in charge told her and said, you choose which child will stay with you in the concentration camp and which child we will take to the gas chamber and execute immediately. And there is some evidence that that happened in true life, that the Germans would take and, and when families came with children, uh, that they would have to make a choice. Which child do you want to, I mean, not to be even set free, but to go to the concentration camp, and which child you would want to be executed immediately? That would be beyond hard, beyond hard. And so choices have consequences. This morning, we're going to look as time permits and as my hip permits. We're going, to, we're going to look at three passages in the Old Testament where individuals were called upon to make choices. And the first one's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And if you want to, turn your Bibles there, and I encourage you to do so because we're going to be reading. And here's the situation that... Uh, Israel has, has wandered in the wilderness, and they've come to the point where they're about to enter the promised land. They're about to enter Canaan. And Moses calls upon them to choose between life and death, uh, blessing and cursing. And he begins in verse 11, there of chapter 30, and tells them that serving God is well within their capabilities. Notice in verses 11 through 14. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us or bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor it is beyond the sea that you should say who would go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it for the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. In other words, Moses is saying God's not asking you to do something that's beyond your capability. And he goes on to say in then verses 15 and 16 that life and godliness come with a loving God and keep, come with loving God and keeping his commandments. See, I have set before you today and life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But then he goes on in verses 17 and 18 to say that death comes to those whose heart turns from God. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. In other words, choose life or choose death. And then in verses 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you 
that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So here Moses says to Israel, after 40 years that God has provided for them, manna, quail, water, fought for them, brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand, delivered them from their enemies, from the Egyptian army, and then other enemies that came before them. And now God says, here's what I want you to do. And Deuteronomy Deuteronomy literally means the second law. In other words, Moses went over the commandments that God had given through him there on Mount Sinai. And so he tells them, Here's these things that God wants you to do, and they're not beyond your capability. You can do them. And if you do them, if you choose life, God says, I'm going to bless you beyond your imagination. But if you choose to disobey and you choose evil, I'm going to curse you beyond your imagination. So Moses says, choose life. Let's look on then to Joshua chapter 24. In Joshua 24, Israel has entered into the promised land. They've went to war, defeated most of the enemies, as God had told them to do. They haven't driven them all out. And God becomes upset, so he tells them, I'm just going to leave them here as a test to you to see for you to find out what you're really about concerning your relationship with me. And so in Joshua chapter 24, and verses beginning in verses verses 1 through 15, in verses 1 through 3, uh, he tells them about their past. And he tells them about Abraham and Abraham's family's religious situation. He says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads and for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers... Your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. God says to them, your ancestors were idolaters. They worshiped graven image. They worship carved things. They worship the creature rather than the creator, as we read about in Romans chapter 1. Then I took, verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. 
Notice what he says. God had brought your descendants, Abraham, out of that idolatry, brought his family out of that idolatry, and multiplied him and gave him a great number of descendants. He goes on in verses 4 and 5 and says that he had led Abraham throughout the promised land and had blessed him. Notice what he says to Isaac. I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. And so you get this picture here. God's saying, this is what I did for your ancestor Abraham. I brought him out of idolatry. I brought him to a land. I multiplied his descendants. I, bought, I blessed his descendants. And then in verse 6, he begins, he says, he brought their descendants out of Egypt and fought for them, much like Moses repeated when we saw there at the end of Deuteronomy. He says, beginning in verse 6, uh, down through um, uh, verse 10, verse 5, verse 6, down through verse 10. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, he brought the sea among them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of Jordan, and they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess the land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippar, Zippor, King of Moab arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. And so here he tells them, I fought for you, I provided for you, I carried you when I brought you out of Egypt, and then I brought you into the land. And then when I brought you into the land, I fought for you. And notice what he says, reading down through verse 13. Um, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land notice for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them and you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. And so here, God through Joshua tells Israel, here's your history. I brought your ancestors out of idolatry. And I brought them to a land. And I watched over them. And I protected them. And I multiplied them. I fought for them. 
I cared for them. I brought them out of bondage. I brought them to a land that you now are on where you didn't build the cities. You didn't plant the crops. And I fought for you and I gave you this land that they said so many years and years ago that was so rich and abundant that it was as if it flowed with milk and honey. In other words, what God was telling them, just look. Look at the evidence of where you are today. Look at the evidence of how you got here. Check your history. Think about your ancestors. And then in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice what Joshua says to them. Make a choice. Choose good or choose evil. Make a choice. Those that walk through the wide gate and follow the broad path, what choice do you think they've made? What about those that go through the narrow gate and walk the difficult way? What choice do you think that they've made? Choose evil. Choose good. One more account. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And this is the account where Elijah calls for Israel to make a decision concerning God and the idol Baal. He begins, and um, we're going to pick up in, in verse 15, where King Ahab, or Elijah, decides there's been a drought in the land for a little over three years, and he lets it be known that he was going to pray to God and rain would come again, that rain would come back after this drought, and he sends for Ahab, and he meets Ahab, and we pick up in verse 15, um, as here's um, uh, Obadiah, I believe it is. Yes, Obadiah was an officer in Ahab's army, and he sent out to find Elijah, and Elijah says, well, I'll be here. And Obadiah says, well, you know, other people have come out and said, you'd said you were going to be there, and then you weren't there, and they were killed, and Elijah says, I'll be here. Verse 15, then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives and before I stand, I will surely present myself to him, to Ahab today. 
So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? So here's a king that had taken Israel into full-blown idolatry, but Elijah, the prophet of God, is the troubler of Israel. Sometimes doing what is right troubles people. And so, uh, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashereth who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab's wife was supporting from the country's treasury these prophets of these idols. So verse 20, we see... That um, God, Elijah calls for them to come. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you halt, some translation says, between two opinions? In other words, make a decision. Is what he's saying. If the Lord, you know, I think about Laodicea. And when John wrote to them, as as recorded in the Revelation. And Jesus said, I would spew you, I would vomit me out of your mouth. Because you're neither hot nor cold. In other words, Jesus, obviously God wants all to be saved. But the Laodiceans didn't even take Christ seriously enough to consider him. And sometimes we meet people like that. They just don't even consider Christ at all. Just nothing to them. Neither prophet or king. Just nothing. Don't even give him a consideration. So, Elijah back here, he says, How long will you falter between opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them choose, give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, Cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire under under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the Lord who answers by fire, he is God. And so the people answered and said, well, that seems good. That's well spoken. But notice when he calls them to make a decision, they don't even respond. We don't care one way or another. So, Baal's given an opportunity, the prophets of Baal, which is sort of interesting if we read down through there. Now, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull, prepare yourself, prepare uh, one bull for yourself, prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire on it. Baal was the storm god. He was the god of lightning that 
flashes in the sky. So you would think if he was truly a god, he would be the one that could bring down lightning and set this sacrifice on fire. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon. So they're going about this for hours. Oh, Baal, hear us. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they've been yelling. Now they're dancing around the altar. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud. Maybe cry you're not talking loud enough. Shout a little more. For he is a God. Either he is meditating or he is busy or he is on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. One of those words in there, and maybe your translation will say it, but most translations do not. When I'm not sure if it's, it's he is busy or he's on a journey, that the original language suggests that what Elijah was saying, well, maybe he's went to the bathroom. In other words, you're praying to a God that's because he's went to the bathroom, he's not going to respond to you. So it was, they did that. So they crowded aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, till the blood gashed, uh, gushed out of them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. There's a lesson in that sentence. Whatever we put before God, that describes it. No voice, no answer, no one cared. Anything we put before God, that describes it. Our work, our material things, our earthly relationship, when it comes to God, they fall very, very, very short. So now it's Elijah's turn. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in, the, in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening, offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their backs you have turned their hearts back to you again 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so they seized those prophets of Baal and they executed them. God made himself evident. And Israel chose him. So what do we learn from these three instances in the Old Testament? When you and I choose to serve and follow God, we're choosing life. We're choosing life. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. And for those of us that are New Testament Christians, we understand the resurrection and life. We understand that there's something beyond this earthly realm. And so we understand that that's abundant and that's better. But Jesus is saying even more than that. He's saying that if we choose God, If we choose to serve and follow God, the life that you and I live on this earth is better than any other life that we could possibly choose. You know, if you choose to serve and follow God, you'll never get picked up for drunk driving. If you choose to serve and follow God, you won't wake up on your front lawn from a drunken stupor. If you choose to serve and follow God, you'll not get a sexually transmitted disease. If you choose to serve and follow God, God will bless you beyond your imagination. Because you've chosen life. Second thing that we notice, when you and I choose to follow and serve God, we choose what is good. In 3 John chapter 1 and verse 11, John writes, Beloved, do not imitate that which is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who has done evil has not seen God. And so when you and I choose to serve and follow God, we are choosing what is good. Not only morally good, but beneficially good. Where would the world be without Christians? Just about every commentator I've read will allude to the fact that because of first century Christians, the whole bondage and slavery system of the ancient world slowly began to cease. That's what New Testament Christians, they understand the value of a human life. They choose good. In Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies about this utopia where 
lions will lay down with lambs and, and, and swords will be uh, uh, changed into plowshares. And the point being is that God's not talking about some future utopia, but he's telling that those that come to Christ, if we can share that Christ, Christ with others and they come to Christ, then we're going to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And as much as possible that is within us, we're going to be at peace with all men, Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. In other words, we've chosen that which is good. And because we've chosen that which is good, we're going to miss and not participate in some of those things that the world participates in. And then lastly, when you and I choose to follow and serve God, we choose what is reasonable. Imagine there you are, you're the children of Israel, and you've just seen what's occurred with those prophets of Baal. For how many years you've listened to their spiel, about Baal being the storm god. For three years you've been in drought. And you've probably prayed to your storm god and rain god to bring rain. Day after day, month after month. You just wonder how many sacrifices were made to this idol to bring rain. Over the past three plus years. And then this contest of contests. And you see with your own eyes that this idol is nothing. But the Lord God of Israel makes himself evident and consumes that sacrifice with a fire from heaven. I think that would cause me to change my mind about that relationship with that idol. Turning your Bibles over to Romans chapter 12, and I want you to look at verses 1 and 2, and maybe for some of us as we get there, you'll, you'll say, oh, I know that verse, I've heard that verse. But notice what the Apostle Paul by inspiration writes. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. In other words, serve, follow God. Notice which is your reasonable service. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying it's the rational thing to do to serve God. It's the reasonable thing to do to serve God. Now you think there you were on Mount Carmel and Elijah does all, God all does all this through Elijah and you've seen what's just gone on for the whole day and you've watched all this. Now if I was there and you were there and, and I saw, we all saw this and I said, 
you know, after seeing this today, I'm going to serve Baal. What would you say about me? That's pretty, whoever said it, that's exactly what you'd say. And you'd probably be kind saying it because it wouldn't make sense. We serve God because it makes sense. Because he's only going to do good things for us. He's only given us good things. He's done everything that he can possibly do for us to be with him throughout eternity. And he's evidenced that. As we read through the scriptures by signs and wonders and miracles. To show that this Jesus whom they crucified in Acts chapter 2 is both Lord and Christ. He healed the sick. He raised the, lame, raised the dead, healed the lame, as we talk, studied this morning. In other words, there was sufficient evidence. And so Paul says, by inspiration, it only makes sense to serve God. It only makes sense to serve God. And when you and I open up the words of that divine book, the Bible, and we put time into reading and, and learning and understanding what it says. We understand what Paul means there. It only makes sense. Because it's evident that Jesus is the Christ. And that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one will go to the Father except through him. So what do we choose? We choose life. We choose what is good. And we choose what is reasonable. And we offer you that, that choice this morning if you haven't made it. If you don't have a relationship with God, we urge you to choose life. Your life. That you may be with God throughout eternity and that you may have the best life that you can live while here on this earth. We urge you to choose what is good because good is always better than what is evil. And good is blessed and good is rewarded and good is appreciated. And good because it is good. And we urge you to choose what is reasonable because the evidence is there that what Jesus claimed to be that he is and what he asked of us will be blessed because God has always blessed those who follow him and serve him. Moses said it, Joshua said it, Elijah said it, and Jesus said it. Are you willing to begin following Jesus this morning if you truly believe thee is the son of God and you're willing to decide right now that from now on I'm not going to serve that which is evil, that which is of the devil, but I'm going to serve God, do what he says. And if you're willing to confess that faith that you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he is now Lord of your life because of your decision to repent, the waters of baptism are ready. And you say, well, why, why do I need to be baptized? Because even though you've made this commitment to this new life, there's still those past sins. And God has shown us through the scriptures and told us 
that when we are buried with Christ through baptism, we are buried in much like his death, burial, and resurrection, that he as he arose in new life, you and I, when we go down into the watery grave of baptism, water, and we come back up, that we arise to walk a new life. Paul says we become a new creature in Christ. We'd like to help you to do that this morning. And if you are a New Testament Christian, as you think about choosing life, and choosing what is good, and choosing what is reasonable, you know, I'd like to think I was always reasonable in my life, but I'm not and haven't been, probably won't be sometime in the future. And sometimes the pleasure of sin, you know, it's pretty enticing. And sometimes we just make bad decisions. But God has given you and I the opportunity to be forgiven. If we're a New Testament Christian and we sin, he's just said acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Turn from it. And ask me in prayer and I'm faithful to forgive you of all unrighteousness. What more could God do? What more could God do? Choose life. Choose what is good. Choose what is reasonable. If we can help in any way, won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement?